Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, we are in a war, but do we know the real enemy? What did Jesus, who we desire to become more like, say about the devil? Well, in a section in John 8 where he's talking to believers about becoming true disciples of himself, this is what he says. You are from your father the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The word Jesus uses here in the Greek is the word diablos, which means accuser. But that's just one of his names. Scripture also calls him the Satan, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver the great dragon who deceives the whole world, the ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray. You see, Jesus did not treat the devil as some fictional character and, in fact, called him the prince of the world three times in Scripture. Remember in Matthew 4, the time that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and the devil took him to a very high mountain And he said, when he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Jesus answered from Scripture, saying, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But notice, Jesus did not disagree with the devil that he did not have the power to give away the kingdoms of the world. Now, in my message title, I say, do you know the real enemy? And your response is most likely, well, yes, it's obvious. It's God's enemy, the devil, or if you prefer, Satan. But my question is meant to go deeper. What do we know about the real enemy Christians face every day of our lives? For many of us, sadly, we have not been prepared enough to battle the enemy. The first step to conquering the enemy is to know our enemy. Not just know his name, but to really know him so we can identify this invisible foe when faced with him in the constant battle for our affections. I think the first thing we need to know is where did this enemy come from? Why do we have an enemy? Well, two scripture passages are key to knowing the origin of the devil. First one is in Isaiah chapter 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who had laid the nations low. 
Now, it sounds from this passage the enemy is quite luminous and bright. Daystar, son of dawn. That's not me. Actually, the King James uses the word Lucifer, and that means light bearer or brilliant one. Then in Ezekiel 28, we read what God said about him. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Carmelian, chrysolite, and moonstone, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald, and worked in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So, how do we reconcile this description God gives about the enemy with Paul's description in our theme verse in Ephesians. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we read a little farther in Ezekiel. With an anointed cherub as guardian, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Now, remember, we're talking about origins. God created Lucifer to be a principal servant of His. Those precious stones that are described in that verse that God describes him, would not shine in a dark place. They only shine as light is reflected on them. Lucifer only shone because he reflected the beauty and light of God. Lucifer, Satan, the devil, was originally one of the most high-ranking angels of God. He was able to look at God's throne. Moses couldn't even do that. He had to hide his face. Lucifer could praise. He could worship. He could adore God. So what happened? Well, Isaiah 14 gives us some great insight into Lucifer's thought process. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Notice the five times the word I will appears. God created Lucifer perfect, but just like Adam and Eve, and us, created him to have the power to choose. Lucifer became prideful. He was proud of his beauty. He was proud of how smart he was. He was proud of his attainment and proud of his capability. What he didn't realize, that everything he possessed 
was a gift from God, and that without God, their creator, he was nothing. I think Ezekiel sums it up really nicely. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And that is why God threw him out of heaven. Jesus describes this event in the book of Luke, chapter 10. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. So that is how the enemy ended up on your doorstep and my doorstep ready for warfare. It is also important to remember the reason why he is so cunning and dangerous an enemy. He was with God in one of the highest positions and learned all about being a reflector of light. Now, why is that a problem? Well, Paul makes it very clear why it's a huge problem in 2 Corinthians 11. And what I do, I will also continue to do in order to deny an opportunity to those who want an opportunity to be recognized as our equals in what they boast about. For such boasters are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You see, Satan knows all about looking like an angel of light in our life, because that is what he was. Now, we know what the final outcome of the warfare will be. 1 John 3.8 says to us, Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God... Jesus, was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Amen. But this does not mean that the war is not still ongoing. It is. But remember, the outcome of the spiritual warfare is already decided. No matter how many battles the devil may win, in the end, he is going to be defeated. However, the followers of Jesus are not immune to the ravages of war. The harms to us can be spiritual, mental, emotional, and even physical. We like to think, the devil made me do it, but the fact is, whatever it is, you did it, and I did it. The main freedom we have is always the choice where we place our minds. In our daily battle for sanity, health, and wholeness, our minds are our most important allies. Our minds also can be our most traitorous enemies. We like to blame the serpent but Adam and Eve's mind caused the fall. The devil planted a thought 
in their minds through a question. Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the enemy believes in questioning authority. He did it with Eve, and he does it today. Our minds control what our bodies desire and largely determine whether our heart is on board or not. Evil is a chosen activity of the mind and the body that results in the destruction of what is good. So you see, the main weapon of Satan in spiritual warfare is to influence your mind and my mind. Remember what Paul said in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, be, be, be transformed by the what? By the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, God gives us imagination, and we can imagine unreality just as easy as we can reality and we can come to believe in unreality. We can put our faith in ideas that are not true, or even worse, that are lies. When we believe truth, in other words, ideas that correspond to reality, we live our daily life in such a way that we grow and thrive because we show up to God himself in a way that lines up with our Creator's wisdom and design and good intentions for us. We tend to be happy and even live a joy-filled life. But when we believe lies, ideas that don't line up with reality of God's wise and loving design, we open up our body to those lies, and basically an ideological cancer infects our souls. And when we are living at odds with reality, we will struggle to thrive in our lives. Satan is the great deceiver, and as our earlier verse says, the father of lies. Lies that come in the form of deceptive ideas are the devil's primary method of enslaving human beings and, in fact, entire human societies in this cruel cycle of ruin. And that is why Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But therefore, the opposite is true. We are enslaved by lies. We are held in bondage to false ideas about reality, and this holds our souls and indeed our society in captivity to suffering and pain. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and they may escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, you may say, and I may say to myself, 
Well, Satan can't fool me. I'm not going to believe lies. I know Jesus. I read my Bible. I even pray. Go to church. I even help out others when I can. Peter gives us a reality check to faithful followers of Christ, he's writing in this passage. 1 Peter chapter 5. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know your brothers and sisters in the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Now, lion experts tell us that there are three occasions when a lion roars. The first is when a competitor comes into their territory to hunt. The second is when he's caught in a storm, sort of like my dogs, they kind of freak out in storms. And the third is when he has caught his prey. And that is what I think Peter is referring to. The lion is saying, I've got you. You see, Satan, like the lion, prowls around quietly, undetected, waiting for his opportunity, seeing how close he can get without being detected, waiting for his moment to pounce. Satan does not come along and say, I think you should go and sleep with some other spouse's wife or husband. He's far subtler than that because he knows that might spook you off. Satan is not as direct with us, and we are not quite as skilled as Jesus to withstand the disordered desires and temptations we face that seem normalized in today's society. Satan wants to stop you and I from living a life of faith. He wants to stop us from living a life of obedience to God and to his word. He wants to separate you from the provision of God, from the mercy of God, and the daily grace of God available to you. Even though you may be a faithful follower of Christ, Satan is not going to give up trying to affect your mind and thereby affecting your decisions, he wants you to live an ineffective, defeated life that does not model the life of a disciple of Jesus. Jesus wants you to know the truth so you can be free Satan wants you to believe his subtle lies so you live in bondage, even though you've made a decision for Jesus and you are his child. None of us are exempt. Joshua lost because he was overconfident. David fell because he wasn't vigilant. Peter fell after walking closely with Jesus for three years because he underestimated his character flaws. Ananias and Sapphira fell because they lied. Satan's prime objective in the Christian's life is to keep us from growing in faith to be more like Jesus. 
to keep us from understanding and applying the Word of God in our daily lives, to keep us from forming some spiritual practices, habits, or disciplines that keep us in the presence of God. Notice Peter says in that verse in Peter, 1 Peter 5, 8, he starts off with, discipline yourselves. Have you developed some spiritual disciplines in your life that keep you connected and close to Jesus in a deeper way? There are dozens of practical spiritual disciplines that can draw you to a deeper walk with Jesus and give you the spiritual armor that's talked about in Ephesians 6. It says in verse 16, with which you'll be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We have heard all about putting on the armor, but how do we do that? We do that through spiritual formation practices talked about all through Scripture that Jesus used in his life. Scripture memorization, fasting, silence and solitude, gathering at church, having a mentor or an accountability partner, prayer, self-examination and confession, contemplative prayer, control of the tongue, blessing others, encouragement, prayer walking, praying scripture, hospitality, giving and stewardship, journaling, slowing and simplicity. There are just some examples. There are dozens and dozens of ways to develop some spiritual formation habits in your life that are valuable and effective for you and will draw you to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Remember, we are in a spiritual war. You do not want to hear the roar of the lion in your ear, as that means you are already living a defeated life, a life different than what Jesus has for us in the here and now of God's kingdom. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com.